welcome back. Yes, we're very subdued for this one. <laughs> yeah, Hello. we want to create a little mood because this is a different. It's a different episode today. Yeah, it's our eleventh episode. Um, yeah, and we wanted to do something. We wanted to do true crime. We really love that genre and wanted to talk about cases that really blow our minds. And this one in particular, we wanted to do because. It's something that, like we said in the kind of the breakdown of the episode, it hits close to home. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew this girl that we're going to be talking about. Um, and like what happened with this particular case, it was, I mean, it was my first SOS moment for sure. Yeah. Um, and I can't even imagine what it was like for her family when this happened. Right. Um, and I don't even know if most of my friends <laughs> know about this. Like I wasn't really telling them. I never told them about it. Mm-hmm. I don't talk about this often. Yeah. So I thought, hey, this will be a good starter. And it's kind of unique, this story, because it does hit close to home. Yeah. And it kind of when we, you know, SOS is a broad, obviously our podcast is broad, but it's also a thing. Those are the mo- those moments happen multiple times in life for various different reasons and losing someone is one of those times and it can shift your perspective on so many things especially when you're young as you were Mm -hmm. and then obviously imagining like her family and what that moment how it changed the course of their life and you know so it's relevant to what we you know want to bring attention to which is just like yeah anything that kind of wakes you up and you you learn something Maybe you didn't even want to know, but you gain more knowledge about the world. Yeah, like a, a life-shifting moment. Yeah. Yeah. So today we'll be talking about my very first friend, Kirsten Hatfield. I met Kirsten in 1995. Her stepfather was a captain in the same squadron as my father in the Air Force specifically in McGuire Air Force Base in New Jersey. Their squadron would sometimes have parties for the service members and their kids, which is how I met Kirsten. We were both five or six at the time. Because our parents got along and hung out often, naturally Kirsten and I played together and naturally became close friends. Being so young, we were each other's first close friends. I remember only a few specific things of a friendship that blossomed so quickly at such a young age, but one of those things is that she was truly the sweetest. If my memory serves me correctly, I would at times revert to some bratty ways, I'm not proud of that, (laughs) but she would always be so kind and patient with my drama. One thing that I will never forget about our friendship was our obsession with Disney movies. The mid-90s were a golden age of classic movies coming out back-to-back, and we devoured them every play date. I was always competitive by nature, and I remember learning the lyrics to the songs first and bragging about it. Kirsten was so sweet and kind, and she'd never get mad at me for singing the lyrics at her, but she'd get excited for our next play date, that she'd learn the songs on her own and come to me and sing them. Pocahontas was definitely a favorite of ours. All my dreaming at an end. Oh, do you still wait for me, dreamkeeper? What's the fun? 
My sister used to babysit us often when Kirsten and I's parents would have Air Force functions and parties. She and my mother both couldn't remember certain things about our friendship when I asked, and my parents are currently moving out of my childhood home, and any pictures of us are unfortunately lost in boxes and storage, so I wish I had more specifics to share with you. What I can tell you is, she was always a light. She was always laughing and smiling, and I loved that about her, especially in comparison to whatever tantrum I would have been throwing at the time. It was also worth noting that she was always a happy child, even with her mom and stepdad's relationship deteriorating. I, of course, had no recollection of this, only what I know is what my parents remember. Kirsten's stepfather and father of our baby sister, Faith, started to talk strangely about Shannon, Kirsten's mother. He, in their memory, was a nice, fun guy until he wasn't. It's like he snapped and would say awkward things about their marriage to my parents during their dinners out. It wasn't a surprise to them when they finally announced their separation. Unfortunately, Shannon moved Kirsten and Faith fairly quickly to Oklahoma following their breakup. My mother and I remember it being really fast. Like, as soon as they broke up, it was like Shannon took the kids the next night. But I remember saying goodbye to Kirsten. I remember her mom dropping her off for a quick moment to say goodbye, and we were upset, but not sad. We didn't allow ourselves to get sad because we were sure we'd see each other again. I remember grabbing my walkie-talkies and giving her one of them so we could talk to each other from far away. We hugged and said goodbye. In her car, we talked to each other in the walkie-talkies until we couldn't, until the signal gave out. That was the last time I spoke to her. In an innocent and naive sort of fashion, that was our goodbye. We didn't keep in touch after she moved. I thought about her, of course, as she was my very first friend, but I imagine having the mind of a six or seven-year-old that I, and maybe Kirsten, made new friends learned new Disney songs, and moved on, as friends do. It wasn't until 1998, when I was nine years old, hanging out with my mom at home, when Kirsten entered my mind again. We were watching Sally Jesse. Mary called our show because she has a daughter named... My mom and I loved watching daytime TV, especially Oprah and Sally Jesse. However, that one day, I'll never forget for the rest of my life. We were watching an episode where she had parents talking about their missing children. It was a very serious episode, and for Sally Jesse, that meant a lot since most episodes were fairly silly. So we were pretty much glued to it. And then all of a sudden... I saw her. I saw Shannon. She was crying. I was confused immediately and I think blacked out while Sally Jesse was introducing her because I remember knowing at that moment that this was a weird, that this was weird and monumental. I mean, talk about an SOS moment. I was frozen until I finally looked at my mother who was also still and wide-eyed at the screen. I said, that's Kirsten's mom. My mom said, yeah, that's her. She was crying, 
She then started to talk about Kirsten, how she was taken in the middle of the night from her bedroom the year before. She shared that room with her little sister, Faith. However, it was only Kirsten that was missing. She described things that didn't make sense to me in my nine-year-old ears. She said that Kirsten's underwear was left behind with blood in it. I remember thinking that was odd and that maybe my mom should turn this off, even though I didn't know why. But I shouldn't be watching this. But my mom couldn't turn it off. We were both frozen. We couldn't believe what we were watching and we couldn't stop. How could someone I knew so well be missing? Eight-year-old Kirsten Renee Hatfield disappeared in the middle of the night from her bedroom in Midwest City, Oklahoma, on May 14, 1997. At 6 a.m. the following morning, her mother, Shannon, went into her bedroom she shared with her younger sister, Faith, to find Kirsten missing and the window left open. When police arrived at the scene, they found a small amount of blood on the windowsill, as well as the pair of Kirsten's underwear she was wearing the night before. They found her underwear in the backyard next to a broken fence post. Things like that just don't happen, and finding out during an episode of Sally Jesse just doesn't happen. What if we never saw that episode that day? What if we never found out? Would I have found out? Would I have looked for her on social media years later? Would my relationship with my friends and my relationship with grief be different? I don't remember if I completely comprehended what had happened or fully processed it. Maybe I never did. The next day in Mr. All's house's third grade class, we regularly started each morning answering his how was everyone's day yesterday? I raised my hand and said that I was watching Sally Jesse with my mom and I found out my friend was missing. In retrospect, I remember he clocked the hell out of that statement to no surprise. Everyone in the class was staring at me in confusion. I said, and the police found blood in her underwear. Mr. Allshouse's face went pale. He stuttered a wow and quickly changed the subject. I can't imagine what was going through his mind when a nine-year-old says something so outrageous, let alone mine. What could a child know about something like that? As the FBI got involved, they canvassed the entire neighborhood for clues, knocking on every door to see if anyone had seen or heard of Kirsten. The most suspicious account they received from the interviews was a neighbor who reported hearing dogs barking around 2 or 3 a.m., but nothing else. There was no sign of forced entry or struggle, which led detectives to believe that whoever grabbed Kirsten, she would have known them. At one point, they had a child psychologist come in and interview three-year-old Faith to see if she remembered anything from that night that her sister was taken while she slept just a few feet away. Being a toddler, of course, these conversations came up short. The only thing Faith told them was, a bad man came in and took my sister. Detectives remained hopeful that they would find enough clues to track down Kirsten's whereabouts, and to do that, they needed a wider net. Shannon soon turned to media outlets to plead for Kirsten's safe return. As the years passed, I can't remember how often I would ask my mother if she knew any updates on Kirsten, but I thought of her often. 
When I became a teenager and established strong friendships, I thought of her. More importantly though, I thought of her as alive. I couldn't outright believe she was dead. I had grown up a bit by then and thought about trafficking or that she was still held captive by the same person that took her. I remember around 2004, maybe, when I had access to my dad's laptop and the internet, I had read that her mother thought the same. I learned that she battled drugs at the time of Kirsten's disappearance and had since gone to rehab and mental hospitals. She found faith, which makes her other daughter's name so fitting, and through God she found peace and even forgiveness. She regularly prayed for Kirsten, but more than that, she prayed for the man that took her. After going public with Kirsten's disappearance, detectives were swarmed with false leads and tips, yet there was one call that immediately stuck out from the rest. My parents saw Kirsten's stepfather, Shannon's ex-husband, a few times after Kirsten's disappearance. He was strange. He'd get drunk and tell people that Shannon's brother took Kirsten and killed her, that they were all no good and addicted to drugs. I'm not sure of his relationship to his daughter, Faith, but I can't imagine they even had one, given that she found the same peace in Christianity as her mother. A woman called the police and told them that she and her boyfriend had gotten into a fight, that her boyfriend told her to shut up or I'll do to you what I did to the Hatfield girl. The boyfriend in question, the police came to find out, is close to Shannon's brother. This piqued detectives' interest. This guy knew Kirsten and had visited the house. Because there was no forced entry, the likely scenario would be that Kirsten would have known the kidnapper. Now, police had a prime suspect. Police immediately searched his house and car, looking for any evidence that would lead them to Kirsten. Nothing was recovered. They asked him about his involvement, and he denied having anything to do with Kirsten's disappearance. His alibi the night she went missing was that he was at the bar all night long. Witnesses corroborated his statement. Detectives continued to keep tabs on him and tried to find more evidence to link him to Kirsten. However, nothing else arose suspicion and they were back to square one. It now became a personal challenge to the lead chief and his detectives to find out how this girl could disappear in the middle of the night. Shannon, too, became relentless in finding out what happened to her daughter. She even went back to school to get a degree in criminology. Soon she worked as a parole officer for the Department of Corrections specializing in sex offender management. Essentially, she was now in charge of helping children from predators, from someone who could hurt them like they did her daughter. Shannon admitted that she was always looking for clues to finding out who took Kirsten. She was desperate for justice. Days turned into weeks, weeks into years, and even though detectives and the Midwest City Police Department used every tool in their disposal to try and locate Kristen Hatfield, nothing came up. Nothing until June of 2014. The police received a call from a woman saying that her grandmother had passed away, and after going through her grandmother's house, she found a box of journals. One of the journals detailed a horrific murder of a young Kristen Hatfield, told to this woman by her own son. It reads that he had taken her to a house to be tortured all night long and eventually murdered. Not only that, but he filmed the entire night. Detectives quickly tracked down the man who told his mother about murdering Kirsten. When they 
brought him in for questioning, they showed him a picture of Kirsten, which sent the man into a fit of tears. He immediately started talking about the journal before the detective could even get a word out. He claims he had nothing to do with Kirsten's abduction or murder, but that he knew who did, his ex-girlfriend. They get a search warrant for the house of his ex-girlfriend and swarm the location. Crime lab technicians spray a chemical around the house to determine abnormal stains like blood. When they did, the whole inside of the house lit up, in their words, like a Christmas tree. They saw so many blood stains, they thought they were in a horror movie. They took pieces of the floor to the lab to analyze and also searched more of the house for clues and eventually came across a box of VCR tapes. They were horrified to think that any of these tapes would contain the brutal attack and murder of Kirsten as detailed in the journal. The detective sat for hours and watched every single videotape in that box, but to no avail. There wasn't any depiction of murder at all, and the blood spatter on the floorboard they tested? Not human. They found nothing in the house related to the case. The journals were pure fiction. Now, the police, detectives, and Shannon were all at a dead end. Kirsten's case remains cold and unsolved. But for one new detective and another investigator assigned to her case, it wasn't over. As my time in high school came to an end and college and boys and partying and boys began, I stopped researching Kirsten's case. But I never stopped thinking about her. Maybe I gave up hope, I don't know. But years passed. I graduated from college. I met my future husband. We moved across the country. We adopted a dog. It wasn't until 2015, about 10 years after I had last inquired about the case, that I randomly, one day, googled Kirsten Hatfield. And what I found shocked me to my core. Lieutenant Detective Daryl Miller took over Kirsten's case in 2014. He was determined to find Kirsten's abductor and promised Shannon that he'd find him and bring him to justice. Shannon didn't know what to make of his promise. After all, at this point, Kirsten had been missing for about 18 years. She thought, what could he do differently that investigators and detectives hadn't already tried to do? Midwest City crime scene investigator Nicole Poplin lived close to Kirsten's home and was terrified growing up thinking about what happened to her in 1997. As a little girl, she looked at Kirsten's case with fear, and that fear carried over into her adult life working for the city and eventually on Kirsten's case. Her curiosity made her determined, like Detective Miller, to bring justice for Kirsten and her family. As Detective Miller and Investigator Poplin approached the case from square one, they discovered something strange. The blood that was found on Kirsten's underwear and on her windowsill was never tested. New, modern forensic technology that could now test blood DNA had not existed prior to Kirsten's case becoming cold. Now, with this Dune technology, they were able to make a match. The blood analysis came back with an unknown male DNA profile. Now detectives decided to call back every male that was interviewed in 1997 that was related to Kirsten's case, neighbors, friends, and family. They also requested a DNA swab to correctly match with the unknown profile they already had. The first 12 men they requested DNA from were cooperative, yet none came back as a match. So they decided to ask one more, 56-year-old Anthony Palma, for his DNA sample. 
They found him working for the Parks and Recreation Department, and he too was eager to help with the case. Palma was Shannon and Kirsten's neighbor in 1997 and was interviewed after her disappearance. He lived just two houses down. He told investigators that he had heard dogs barking around 3 a.m. but thought nothing of it and went to bed. Now, after talking to Palma a second time, they took a DNA sample and left. It was later that week that investigator Nicole Poplin and her director, Keisha Jones, found a shocking discovery. Palma's DNA matched the blood from Kirsten's underwear and windowsill. I couldn't believe that just a month before I randomly thought, hey, I wonder if they caught the guy yet, that they actually caught the guy. What were the chances? I mean, if I had a dime for every time I thought that exact phrase, what were the chances when it came to Kirsten Hatfield? I'd be a very rich woman. The detectives immediately bring Palma in for questioning. They asked all about his interactions with Kirsten and her family. He claims that he didn't know them at all, but might have interacted based on how all the kids in the neighborhood used to stop by his house for some juice and food. Eventually, after asking once again what he remembers the night Kirsten went missing, Palma's story hadn't changed in the 18 years since she was gone. He sticks by his story that all he heard were dogs barking in the middle of the night, and that he also saw a white truck parked near Kirsten's house, but nothing else. Soon, after playing nice with Palma, the detectives finally tell him that his DNA matches the blood found at the scene. Um, and we collected DNA samples from lots of people, but we had submitted, resubmitted some evidence from the case and uh, got the DNA kit. Okay. Um, the reason those buckle swabs were being collected was we were trying to find the person yeah. responsible. Okay. We we talked about had you ever been in the backyard? Have you ever been in the house? All those things, and you said you hadn't. Not while they were there, no. Okay. Well, I don't I don't believe you. Oh. Tony, I don't think you're telling the whole truth, okay? Your DNA is in the backyard the morning that she was discovered missing, okay? And on her window and on the panties she'd been wearing the night before that were recovered in the backyard. No. No, not me, because I was not no. Yeah, that, that's the truth. I find it far-fetched, but no. I, I don't know. I didn't know him. Detectives then show Palma a picture of eight-year-old Kirsten and begged him to help find Kirsten. Palma simply pushed the picture away and said no, as if to distance himself from her entirely. Detective Miller claimed Palma had cold, dead eyes, the eyes of evil. Anthony Palma was then arrested and charged with the abduction and murder of Kirsten Hatfield. At this point, I had put a Google alert on Kirsten's name. I had to know what was going on every step of the way, the details, the evidence, the guy's priors. I was obsessed. I was getting at least 10 alerts every couple days with articles on her case, and eventually, on the trial. 
Paul, just a man of few words, probably the best way to describe Anthony Palma today, who faced a judge for the first time since being charged with kidnapping and murder. Inside an Oklahoma County courtroom, all eyes went to the TV where a man in orange faced a jailhouse camera. Anthony Palma. A judge laid out the charges against Anthony Palma in the case of Kirsten Hatfield. First degree murder, attempted kidnapping. His bond denied due to the heinous nature of the crime. Investigators believed Palma would have murdered Kirsten within 24 hours from her abduction. Police and forensics quickly took cadaver dogs and searched Palma's home for any sign of a body. They used ground-penetrating radar to find anomalies in his yard to hopefully lead to Kirsten's body. Yet nothing was recovered. Though, detectives knew that Palma worked at the Parks and Recreation Department. He had access to lakes and land. Kirsten's body could have been anywhere. Before Palma's trial began, prosecutors were challenged with reaching a guilty verdict with no confession or body. They didn't know if the DNA would be enough to convict. Until a young woman came forward to police, claiming that Palma attacked her when she was the same age as Kirsten Hatfield. The woman claims Palma crawled through her bedroom window one night when she was eight years old and asked her to take off her underwear. The girl never reported the incident, yet she gave a sincere and convincing testimony at his trial. Investigators also found a woman who, a year after Kirsten went missing, said she was only 17 when she used to live with Palma and that he drugged and raped her violently in their bathtub. This account was, again, unreported. Prior to these incidents, prosecutors found that Palma had a prior conviction for severely beating his female landlord in the 80s. While Palma's lawyers thought this was all useless, the prosecution maintained that this was all a culmination of someone who would be capable of kidnapping, assaulting, and murdering Kirsten Hatfield, and they were right. After just an hour of deliberation, the jury reached a verdict, guilty of first-degree murder. When I found out they convicted, I felt... A sense of relief, but a sense of worry. Palma still hadn't confessed, and based on his history, I wasn't exactly expecting him to anytime soon. But we got him. He'll be in prison for life. Plenty of time to atone and tell Kirsten's family who, by the way, regularly wrote to him with prayers for his confession and well-being. Where Kirsten's body is. He could always have a change of heart. The man convicted of abducting and killing eight-year-old Kirsten Hatfield, 22 years ago, is dead. Over the weekend, DOC confirmed Anthony Palma was killed at the state pen in McAllister Friday. On Friday, January 11th, 2019, a correctional officer during a routine security check found Anthony Palma unresponsive in his maximum security cell he shared with another inmate. That cellmate, Raymond Pilardo beat and strangled Palma to death. Officials believe Palma was targeted because of the nature of his crimes. Anthony Palma still had yet to reveal where Kirsten Hatfield was. I was heartbroken for Shannon, for Faith, for Kirsten. I know there's a huge part of me that was happy he was dead. She was my first friend. He killed her. 
I don't share the same faith as her mother and sister, so forgiveness on their part always baffled me. I couldn't imagine the courage and strength it takes to forgive the man who tortured and murdered your daughter. And now we might never know what happened to Kirsten. But I also think about the technology that's developed and that there could be a breakthrough with old evidence that could finally tell us what happened to her and give her family peace. As I said time and time again, what are the chances? Thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Um, Thank you for telling this story. Yeah, of course. I mean, again, like, I don't know how many people actually know this and it's not like me and my mom or anybody. We talk about this often because it's just a weird. Yeah. I I think of it as a weird blip in the matrix (laughs) of my life because it's just so bizarre. And the fact that you found out on a, on what, just watching a TV show. Yeah. Not even insane. Cause I always watch i just watch a lot of true crime shows but i'm like what if somebody who knows these people what if this is how they find out right exactly uh yeah we didn't even find out through mccrossin that's his name that uh the captain her, her stepfather oh, we didn't okay. find out through him I, I don't know yeah i don't know how often they hung out after she disappeared or after they broke up but mm-hmm. eventually they started hanging out again and he got weird but yeah no we found out through that episode it was just so strange and and i think it's um I mean, incredible, but also how could you not? But the fact that Shannon, uh, her mom went to school for criminology, like seriously is like, I'm waiting on all these people to give me answers and figure this out. And I need to be doing more. I can be doing more. Like she was always looking for clues like while she was working there. And I can't imagine that. Like she, And it was like the end. So you said that she had had issues with drugs prior to Kirsten's disappearance. So that was enduring and enduring. So it's like. On many moments, when you talk about SOS moments, which can be terrible moments, it's it spawned a lot in her life, obviously. I mean, she got clean. She mm-hmm. went back to school. Um, I mean, as you, as you, anyone, I think, could understand, like, that's what you would do. But it's crazy. Like, one thing sets so many lives on a different course. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I don't know how... I just can't believe this guy had gone on for so long. Right. Everything that's gone, that happened. And that little girl that um, also came forward. Well, she's not a little girl anymore, but that woman that came forward saying that when she was the same age as Kirsten, that he had touched her inappropriately. She was the little sister of his ex-girlfriend. And it's also terrifying because the fact that, I mean, only two women came forward and had stories, both unreported. Yeah. Then you just think of... I mean, there's no, they're not reported, so they're not in the numbers and statistics. Like, imagine how many unreported situations are just out there. Because we know the numbers and the numbers that are reported are terrifying. Yeah. And it's like this happening. I mean, these are women. These are 17-year-old girls, 8-year-old girls. It's just, it's always going on if they don't have resources or if they're a child. And you're, you don't, I don't know. It's just. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean it, if they, I mean. I can't say they should have reported. I mean, I don't know what it's like to be in their position and be so scared. But he imagined like he just it wasn't obviously the only time he maybe it was the only time he killed somebody. But like the only time he did something like that and he and every time he does it and it's not reported, he's more and more emboldened. Here he is eight living his life for 18 years knowing this and just and never confessing, but never confessing. No, like they might never know where she is. Right. 
and it's like I said, like I, I feel so conflicted with his death because I, I feel, I do feel like an eye for an eye a lot of the yeah. time when it comes to something as mm-hmm. brutal as what he did. But but I also do, I think a worse in my mind, worse punishment for someone who's done something like that is to is life in prison. Yeah. Then, I mean, I know we're not talking about the death penalty, but like. For me, I, I agree eye for an eye. And for me, that means like, what's the worst possible thing that could happen to you? And to me, it, it's living with that in prison versus getting get out of jail free card and getting right. killed, if that makes sense. No, that makes sense. It's it's horrible. But that's so. obviously that's very common. You hear like in especially high security, like guys who have done some of the most brutal murders and terrible crimes and it's basically universally known that if you have anything to do with hurting children, sexually assaulting children, they're all coming for you. Oh yeah. Yeah. And his cellmate was a convicted murderer. Yeah. It was maximum security. Like it was like a no joke part. And he also, what I found interesting, I didn't put it in here, but he waived his right to an appeal, which is interesting. Oh, I don't know. He's a, he was a really strange man. And, um, I don't know, but basically if anything, if you can take away from this besides, you know, an interesting story is just to kind of cherish your loved ones, yeah. your friends, tell them you love them. You never know what could happen. Like I kept saying, what are the chances? Like, I don't know. Like I always felt really close to my friends and never wanting to let them go because yeah. I felt like, what if that was the last time? I, I hate taking things for granted. I know. Because of that moment. I know. And yeah, it's crazy. Cause you can be, you know, we all have arguments or whatever with people, but the argument can live on its own. It doesn't have to taint the the final words you say to someone when you leave the room, so to yeah. speak. Like you can know, you can both know we're not cool yet. Like we're kind of still in an argument, but I don't need to leave the room and go to work or go to bed. And the last thing I say to this person is like, fuck you, or mm-hmm. I hate you, or I wish you. Words are strong and powerful and they have the ability to haunt you forever. Yeah. And you don't know when your time is up, when someone else's time is up. I mean, you know, watching true crime shows and listening to podcasts, it's all, it's abstract. It's this story and you're hearing about it and you're like, wow, that's crazy. It's fascinating. But it doesn't feel close to you. You know, mm-hmm. like you said, even you, you hear about these things and you're like, but that doesn't happen. That couldn't happen to me or someone I know. Or no. it, you know, it, it all sounds cliche, but it's also cliche because it's true. Yeah. I know. I, 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 it's like I said, a weird blip in the matrix because. Yeah. And it wasn't like we talked about it a lot either. So it's like, it never happens sometimes. You and, and your to, family. Yeah. And it's like, some, I remember there were times where I would just be like, again, you know, a couple of years would pass and I'd be like, wait, mom, remember Kirsten? And she'd be like, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I feel like I made it up sometimes. Yeah. And like, but it wasn't until I had Googled her in 2015 and I found out they had just arrested the guy. That's weird to me. That I was like, this is real life. Like I could, you know, and I found all these articles. Like never, not never, you hadn't thought about it for a long time or looked it up. And the the day that you do was a month after they found him. Yeah. After 18 years. Almost to the day. It's almost like, like she's there being like, hey. Giving you that peace of mind type of thing, you know? Yeah. It's a weird energy, a Mm -hmm. weird, I don't know, serendipitous yeah curiosity i don't know yeah yeah so thank you so much for for listening i'm including a lot of links um to this uh episode in our show notes so please check them out Mm -hmm. um i also there's a really great uh little 
episode from uh, on the case with Paula Zahn that she did on Kirsten. Um, that was really helpful. Mm. Uh, so check that out. All right. And then the, the um, charity nonprofit we're doing for this one is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Um, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children is a private nonprofit whose mission is to help find missing children, reduce sexual exploitation, and prevent child victimization. Um, they work with families, victims, private industry, law enforcement, and the public to assist with preventing child abductions, to recover missing children, and provide services to deter and combat child sexual exploitation. So to donate, please visit www.missingkids.org. And for next week's episode, a little bit of a turn. Yes. <laughs> After 11 episodes, we feel like you respect and honor our opinions, right? <laughs> right? 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 <laughs> <laughs> we answer your burning questions and offer some advice in another new and hopefully recurring segment called What Would Molly and Alyssa Do? <laughs> it's like Dear Abby, but with more TMI and less credibility. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so don't forget to... Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the SOS Pod and subscribe. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, rate us five stars, review. It really helps us reach more people. Follow our YouTube channel at SOS with Molly and Alyssa because we will be recording, video recording our episodes really soon. So yes. thank you so much for thank listening. Thank you guys. Bye. We'll see you next week. Here's to turning meltdowns into magic. Bye.